Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking food inflation and the agri-markets. What's behind the dramatic rise in food prices? Is it structural and here to stay? Or can we expect food prices to decline in line with the agri-markets? More broadly, what's going on in the agri-sector? What are prices doing? And what milestones should we be looking out for to predict where prices are headed over the course of this year and into next? Our guest is Kona Hack. Kona is an economist with 25 years experience in the commodities markets, and currently head of research for EDNF Man, one of the world's leading soft commodity traders. I want to thank everyone for leaving a positive review on the platform you're listening on. It really does support the show, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Well, Kona, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Paul. So I'm looking forward to this discussion. We're talking about food inflation and the agri-markets, so, uh, which is obviously a very prevalent story today and, and certainly of last year. And I think we're going to talk about why perhaps it's not going away anytime soon. Can you just set the scene for us before we sort of understand the reasons behind it? What is the market backdrop of and, and prices around food and, and perhaps starting, you know, in the last decade when ultimately prices were low and we had a very stable inflation scene when it came to food? Yeah, no, absolutely. I do think the, you know, as I say, we're living in interesting times. Well, the reality is that I think the inflationary times that we're living in today is probably the norm. And what we had in the previous two decades is actually the unusual, or if you like, the abnormal times. Because what we had in the early 2000s and late 2010s was really extraordinarily low inflation. Those kind of low inflation doesn't has not really happened in the history of time. So, you know, let's go back a bit. What, what did we actually see? Before COVID, we had a decade when China was exporting deflation because of its low cost of production. There seemed to be a nice level of economic growth without too much inflation. Farmers were being paid well for their crops. We had a few weather spikes here and there, which led to some occasional price spikes. But on the whole, crops and agricultural products around the world were relatively affordable, if you like. In fact, so much so that farmers at some point late, you know, after the mid 2010s, were actually not receiving very favorable returns for their crops. And we started to see a fair amount of sluggishness in terms of the supply response by farmers, particularly in the USA. So I think if you look at the corn prices back in the mid 2010s, they were quite, quite low, you know, just before COVID, I think, in the 2015-16s just at the time when crude oil was pretty low as well. The likes of corn was trading at $3.50. You know, these per bushel, these are very low prices where farmers can just about break even. Then you had COVID, and that was obviously incredibly unusual situation. Throughout this period of COVID, we did actually see prices start slowly picking up. And that's because we were reflecting this supply side lag because there wasn't so much of a production increase that was keeping up in in, 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 t- in tandem with the demand side. Then just after COVID um, finished, if you like, and the lockdowns were over and the economies in the Western world were starting to reopen, 
there was this unleashing of demand, this pent-up demand that led to such an extreme consumption boost that the supply side just couldn't respond and cope with, if you like. So stocks started to be drawn down. There was production tightness pretty much everywhere around the world. And and production and prices just really, really started to soar into the um, levels that we hadn't seen for a long, long time. So this, to me, was very much a reflection of the supply-demand imbalance, but in particularly um, post-COVID, a massively accentuated situation because of this um, pent-up demand. Could you just help us set the scene? What was the exact inflation that we were seeing? Can you just give us some numbers around that, just to give us all a sense of scale and get us on the same picture? So during during the time just before COVID, uh, we started to see... Food prices at around a very comfortable level of two to two five percent year on year. So historically, these are pretty average levels. As I said, you have periodically seen prices spike up higher and above normal, but they they tend not to last too long. But what we're seeing now, in the last couple of years, we've seen inflation at double digit rates. The FAO, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization they started to track prices at levels they had never seen ever before. So there were record levels of price throughout the agricultural and food commodity spaces. We're looking at something like 16% year-on-year growth all the way to 20% year-on-year growth, depending on which commodities you were talking about. And these are very high levels of historically, but in particular impacting the developing countries more. Obviously, that's where more of the disposable income is spent on food. So they're the ones who'd be suffering the most in a direct consumption point of view. But either way, you know, if whether you're in a developing country or a developed country, these kind of soaring price inflation, it's not easy to stomach, pardon the pun. I mean, it's really, really not nice when you go to the food supermarket and your shopping bill just goes up every time so much more than you're used to budget. And these sort of high levels of prices are just not going away fast enough. And yet it's unusual because if you look at what happened a year ago, which was just when the when Ukraine was invaded by Russia, that's when things were at its worst in the sense that Ukraine and Russia are two massive origins in terms of grains and agricultural production. So when you take out these two superpowers in terms of agricultural production out of the equation of the supply base, you're left with a very, very tight market. Essentially, you're left with the likes of the USA and Brazil, parts of Asia to fill the void. And it really isn't enough when the world had been so reliant on former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe for so much of their grains and agricultural produce. So what actually happened? So when when Russia invaded Ukraine, overnight, you started to see a supply drop from this region. Demand in the meantime, as I mentioned before, because of COVID was extremely high. This supply imbalance led to prices rocket up to 40-year highs. So wheat got to something like $12 per bushel when normally we'd be trading at about 7 or even 6 even. So um, it didn't last long, to be fair, because these things never do. Um, and sure enough, food and agricultural products being highly responsive in terms of supply because they tend to be annual crops that farmers can plant within a year, unlike metals or energy, where the the lag on supply is so much more um, longer. 
you are starting to see both Brazil and the USA react to these high prices with farmers increasing their acreage. So a year on from the Russian invasion, we're actually starting to see the commodity prices of these food products actually come back to the levels they were just before the invasion. So we had the big peak. I'd say May, March, April, May 2022 was the outright peak in terms of the recent history. Now they've fallen back to the February lows just before the invasion, but they haven't actually fallen to the pre-COVID lows. So if you look at prices back in 2018 or 19, just before COVID hit, um, those prices are still substantially lower than where we are today. So why is that? Why do we have these three separate situations where you have low prices in 2018, high prices in 2020 during COVID, and extremely high prices in 2022? And today, 2023, prices have fallen, but they're still not back to the 2018 lows. And there's a very important reason for this. The world has changed. And it goes back to what I was saying before, that we are now living in an inflationary world. Crude oil today is... $70, whereas back in 2018, it was even as low as $55.60. The world's not producing more resources. We've got China, who is demographically getting older and is not able to export low-cost goods to the rest of the world. We have an aging workforce in the Western world where there's either a shortage of farmers or there's a shortage of labor. So you're not seeing that throughput in terms of low costs. Freight has gone up as well. Yes, they've fallen within, from a year, but they're not back to the 2018 level lows. So everything has gone up in, in price or in, in terms of costs. And obviously this filters through to the agricultural space. The cost of fertilizers, the cost of labor, the cost of um, pesticides, all of these things are so much more expensive. There's no way we're going back to those mid-2010 levels. So what it does mean is that although the commodity prices may have fallen, us in the supermarkets or buying our foods, we haven't felt that yet. There is a one-year lag. That's exactly where we are today. We're still seeing double-digit food food price inflation across the Western world. And in the developing world, it's even more extreme. Mm. There's lots to unpack there. And I I guess my first question, none of those conditions that you mentioned about sort of the big structural reasons of China's aging population, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. I mean, those pre-existed COVID, right? Was COVID a catalyst for all of this, or and, and effectively we were going to see these abnormal times of low prices and low inflation uh, dissolve away anyway, or has something structurally changed as a result of COVID? I'm just trying to understand, kind of, if this is just part of a normal cycle, uh, it was just accelerated, or whether something fundamentally has shifted. It's a good question. I do think COVID had an accelerating factor. It was probably more of a catalyst than a structural changer. I think we were moving this direction anyway, because prices had been a little bit too low for too long. And there was eventually going to be some supply side lags. And this is certainly a case that you can argue for in the metals and the energy space where we definitely have seen an underinvestment on the supply side, and this is going to really start hitting um, the S&Ds going forward. In the agricultural space, we know supply can be more responsive. So there's something else here that's at foot. And in my mind, that is climate change. Whether it's more volatile 
weather, whether it's extreme heat, whether it's floods in certain parts of the world or droughts in other parts of the world, something has definitely changed the supply side. We've had three La Niñas in a row. This is really not very common um, and it really has taken a bashing on the supply side or the ability to for producers in Southeast Asia or South America to respond the way they would have liked to. You know, prices um, the last year has be, have been really attractive, and yet farmers have not been able to respond the way they wanted to because the weather has been so abysmal for them. And then, of course, on top of that is what I was mentioned before, and that's where there's more of a structural change, and that is the cost of labour. You know, people are now... The young people who used to grow, uh, grow up in the farms or helping their dad in their plantations, they now want to leave the rural areas and move to the urban areas and get an education and move, move out of the farmers and get a proper job. You know, this is definitely a trend we're seeing around the world. Fertiliser costs, definitely because of the Ukrainian invasion, but even before that um, had been rising, as have there been the uh, you know, other general supply side, husbandry, pesticides and nutrients, these have all gone up in price. So we have definitely seen a cost plus push around the world. And obviously, the the mechanical um, tractors, those run on fuel, the fuel's going to become expensive. The freight, you know, we saw container and dry bulk cargo freights go through the roof in the last year year or so so that obviously has led to massive massive increases in the cost of shipping anything and the landed price for food so these are cyclical some of them in nature and you know we certainly have seen freight come off at least in containers dry bulk is proving a little bit more sticky so those um, we're still waiting for those shipping costs to come down i think labor is going to take a while to come down if they do at all and energy prices, you know, unless we see energy prices go back to the 40s or the $50 per barrel, you're not going to see the farmers using their tractors at the same cheap level they were able to before. So what we, what we, the markets essentially what they're telling us that these level of prices, where it's effectively asking the producers to plant more, produce more, invest in yields to increase the supply side, because um, the demand is definitely strong. But I don't. I guess I'm, I'm. I'm failing to understand. So, but but in general, agri prices have come back down to pre-invasion levels. That would suggest that things like sort of fuel costs and so forth for the producer. I mean, that would suggest a response from the producers. So, does it then lie at sort of the the processing piece? You know, or, I mean, or or us. You know, we've all seen sort of supermarkets hauled up in front of various governments asking why they're made making such record profits. It seems to me the agri-markets have been responsive, but then you've still got this lag on prices. I'm just trying to understand why that is. Yeah, no, it's a complicated supply chain because um, the whole system has been ridden with um, cost increases across the, across the chain. So, yes, at its basis, at the very root of it, we saw commodity prices go up, whether it's sugar, whether it's um, wheat, whether it's coffee, whether it's palm oil or sunflower seed. Everything went up and peaked around about May 2022. They've all now come back down to February 2022 levels now. And yet, supermarket prices are probably the highest they've been in absolutely ages. So why is that? At every chink of the supply chain, they will try and take some margins. So whether it's the retailers or the supermarkets 
or the ocean freight traders, everyone will try and take a piece of the action. And when prices are this high and volatile, the margins that can be reaped are inevitably going to be um, higher. So the whole thing then gets fed through into the final cost, and it's the poor consumer that has to suck up the high price. So it's going to take a while for the system to get back to the previous lows. And I think that could happen either through demand destruction because consumers literally go to the supermarket and say, I can't afford this, I'm just not going to buy. And then that forces the the supermarkets to start discounting heavily or they start putting pressure on the farmers to give them better prices or something has to happen. Or it happens on the the, um, up chain, on the upstream side where the farmers just end up with a weather boon or um, something really great happens on the yield sides, which allows them to produce a bumper crop. And then they just need to get rid of it so quickly because they have too much stock that they start selling their produce to, to the, their customers at lower prices. So something does happen. You know, there's one thing we know in commodities is that everything is cyclical. and Whatever goes up eventually comes down. It's just that it's proving to be a little bit more sticky this time around. Yeah. And and this is kind of this trying to pass between the structural elements and the the event efforts because if i'm understanding correctly there are also a numerous reasons why it won't go back down to that those low levels and we might be just in a, a structural period of higher food inflation over the long term two questions one would be where does some of this is our response to climate change where does biofuels sit in there and more broadly can you just help us understand how perhaps where demand is heading especially in the, in the light of China reopening, etc. So if I address the first one first, um, biofuels, you'd have thought that today with um, oil prices being as volatile as they are and the recent highs that we saw, the biofuel prices should be going through the roof. And yes, they have, they have definitely firmed up. What's interesting this time round is that compared to 2007, when biofuels are really just being introduced to the world market in the USA and Europe. We haven't seen this sort of food versus fuel debate coming up. Back in 2010, for example, I remember there used to be food riots in in Tunisia, in Mexico, red riots in the Middle East and the Arab Spring, you could argue, was built on these food wars. That was very much found um, found itself at a time when prices were too high for food, for staples, And it was also because there was a lot of competition with other grains that were being produced for biofuel purposes, which is corn and sugar or um, soybeans for diesel or biodiesel. This time around, we haven't seen that so much. And you could argue that perhaps that's because production has been ample to meet both the biofuel demands as well as the food demands. And the fact that prices have come down in a year without having to encroach into the biofuel space suggests that probably the supply is actually not that tight. Do you see what I mean? So in the past, if you had a situation like this where prices were so high and you'd have seen riots in the floor in the in the in the streets, that was basically the people telling governments, you we need every food you have and it needs to be coming to the food for feed or for humans. It cannot be going into fuels. We just haven't had that this time around. So I'm thinking that the there has been enough supply to meet both fuel and, and food demand. But anyway, I think biofuels is a, is a whole story in itself. 
it really, really um, started off massively based on subsidies and government support programs. Today, they're a profitable-ish business in its own right. There really shouldn't be any more subsidies. Um, I think, you know, for example, in the U.S., corn production can quite easily meet biofuel demands and needs without any kind of government subsidies. But for some reason, I think a lot of the governments still feel that that needs to be, they still need to intervene in this in this area. Mm. The other thing I just wanted to quickly say on the biofuel side of thing is that, you know, we're talking more and more about renewables. And yet what's really interesting is that this time around, when you had the big oil price inflation, no one was talking about biofuels and looking at more how we move into solar energy and, and, and hydrogen as opposed to biofuels. So I think... I think we might have reached a short-term limit on the biofuel industry. And then I guess the demand picture. Yeah, China. Now, China, everyone was very excited earlier this year when China was finally coming out of the um, double, two or three years of COVID lockdowns. China in 2023 is not the China we saw in twenty in 2008 when it started to really come up and ramp up and absorb all the world's commodities. The China that we're seeing today is much more mature. The pent-up demand that's been unleashed since the COVID has been very much on consumer spending for discretionary items, but we haven't seen any kind of uh, demands really coming out of the property sector or investments from fixed asset investments or real estate or industrial demand even. So I think that's what's been a real um, disappointment, if you like, for the commodity industry, that we just haven't seen China come back into the world commodity market like they had in the past. And that's fine. You know, China's becoming a mature economy. Um, The world as well, you know, it's slowing. Maybe the world doesn't need China to be producing so many factory outputs and therefore um, the demand for copper and iron ore is not as intense. But when it comes to agriculture, I would say China has been consuming quite a bit. The Chinese traders are incredibly savvy and um, they just know how to pick a bottom. They have been utilising their domestic um, state reserves, which they've amassed quite nicely over the COVID period. They had quite a lot of stocks to draw down upon. And when it got to levels that they thought were a little bit low, they did come in at the lows and they did pick up even more whether it was corn or soybeans or cotton or sugar. So I do feel that the Chinese um, stock levels are not terribly tight at this point. That said, if consumer demand does end up being stronger than expected, and they should be because post-COVID, what we are seeing is a lot of demand for people going into restaurants and consuming outdoor consumption of um, beverages and snacks. That should lead to high demand for the likes of vegetable oils and sugar for beverages, for example, or coffee even. I think that's when we're going to start seeing sporadic tenders, if you like, or big bulk buying from the government or major major trade houses coming in and mopping up whatever they can find. It's not been as strong or intense as maybe we would have expected as back in the mid-2010s. Because they're drawing down those stocks or the demand itself just hasn't returned as expected? I think it's a combination of both, to be honest. And unfortunately with China, the access to statistics and domestic s and is becoming more and more difficult to penetrate. And so it's not really clear how 
what the reserves or the stock levels are, or consumption even. Um, so I think what we have to, the only way we can look at it is looking at the arbitrage. We look at the Chinese domestic prices versus the international prices. And whenever um, that arbitrage is open, you tend to see a lot of um, imports taking place. I think that's, that's at this point the most obvious public gauge you have in terms of how, how much is required. But it's not as easy as it used to be in the past to understand what's happening in China. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. Let's let's return back to this idea of inflation and how how sticky it's going to be in a moment. Where we're recording this in May, where are markets at roughly? You know, softs and grains today over the next few months. I mean. What sort of milestones should we be looking out for? What things are going on to sort of give you some kind of sentiment on whether price is going to continue to go down and normalise or whether there could be some real shocks coming up? So it's a bit of a mixed picture in the agricultural commodity space. Um, on the one hand, we've seen the soft commodities really, really rally quite hard. So we're seeing sugar at 11-year highs, Coffee prices are still hovering at the high 180 cents per pound. Cotton prices are going up. Cocoa prices are going through the roof. So we're seeing those tropical commodities, if you like, doing really, really well. And I'll explain to you in a minute why. If you look at the grains, however, particularly the ones that are traded on the Chicago futures, those have actually been underperforming quite substantially. We're seeing a bit of a wholesale outflow of hedge funds and speculators seem to be leaving the agricultural space, the grains and soybeans, if you like. And I think the reason for this is because, number one, on the back of the recent price increase increases that I was talking to you about last year, we started to see a massive crop in Brazil because farmers were clearly incentivized to throw everything they could at this next crop, you know, in terms of acreage and fertilizers. They really went all out. Um, the weather has been benign so far in Brazil and looks like so far in the US as well. So farmers in the US are also seemingly on track to be planting another big crop. On top of that, we're seeing demand. We couldn't be met um, because Russia and Ukraine were not, not being able to supply. I think that ended up being that those bottlenecks out of that region was actually solved, um, whether it was through the grains corridor, which was which was um, found by the which was helped through by Turkey and the United Nations, or um, somehow the grains just managed to flow, whether it was through Ukrainian land or um, some kind of ocean deals, which Russia con- um, managed to negotiate with some of its other uh, consumers like uh, China and India. So we actually have seen the grains flow, despite this region being, in theory, at war. So the markets, therefore, are pricing in the fact that there is no supply shortage. Now, we're in May, as you said, and for me, it's always a little bit dangerous when we have the whole weather 
season ahead of us. So the crops are just going in in the Northern Hemisphere. So Europe and um, Russia and Ukraine and the USA and Canada are all planting. And then we have the whole growing season of May, June, July, August, September before we start harvesting. That's a lot of weather uncertainty ahead of us that have not been priced yet. And to me, that feels a little bit risky. As I mentioned before, we're moving from three La Niñas into now a new phenomenon, which is called El Niño. This can provide additional weather surprises. So we don't know what's ahead of us. So the fact that the specs are leaving this sector is interesting if there was to be any weather event um, or supply side shock, I think you'd see them come quite rapidly back in because they do seem to be a little bit oversold. But um, as a whole, the sector, you know, grains might be looking a little bit cheap um, and as, as are some of the soybeans because of the big crops in Brazil. But then you look at the soft commodities, you know, coffee, the supply demand balance is very tight. Sugar, you know, because of El Nino, India and Thailand are going to have very tight cane crops, cotton had those floods in, in Pakistan that didn't help things. And, you know, post-COVID, the demand for apparel is going up. And cocoa as well, you know, we've had issues in Cote d'Ivoire. So we are seeing a lot of supply-side problems that are very much weather-related, but um, you will see isolated pockets of uh, supply shelves, which will ultimately lift the whole sector higher, back up again. So two different stories, right? Like grains trending downwards, and then tropical commodities, it sounds like primarily as a result of weather, are the ones where we're seeing those supply-side shocks play out. Is that sort of the, the synopsis? Correct. And tinged with the supply-side shock, I should also have mentioned that it's also the lack of fertilizer usage. That was one big thing which came out of the Russian-Ukraine invasion. The, the access to fertilizers and the cost of fertilizers, those really did double or triple in price. And um, while some Countries were immune to it. For example, Brazil, who were on the friendly list with Russia, they actually seem to be seem to have got away with it quite nicely. India as well managed to get hold of their supplies of fertilizers, but a lot of the other tropical producing countries were not able to access cheap fertilizers. And for those countries, I do believe the recent um, yield losses that we're expecting in in cotton or sugar, for example, I think is very much to do with lack of fertilizer usage. So I think that did have an impact then. Yeah. It's quite it's quite a complicated picture, isn't it? So so trying to tease this all apart, if you can sort of looking forward, right? And again, we'll come back to sort of food inflation. That's a slightly different story, given you've got sort of the downstream piece. You've got, I mean, what what should we be looking out for, right? What's the fertilizer story to look out for? What's the weather story to look out for? And then kind of what else could be, you know, as you look towards the rest of the year into next, what else could be sort of one, a big sort of derailer for these markets that send us right back up to food inflation where it is today and 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 stop that downward pressure so with agricultural um i think weather is still ultimately the key um and that's why we will never be able to tell you where prices are headed um beyond the next six months it's just always so volatile but if you're looking at big themes and structural arguments what i, what I would say is that right now Farmers are enjoying the high prices they've seen in the last um, year and a half, and they should, in theory, be responding to that. So I think what we expect is to, is to see a decent supply response. Um, and then as long as weather complies around the world, and that's a big if, you should start seeing stocks starting to get replenished a little bit more. 
I'm not sure we're going to be able to get to the high stocks that we saw pre-COVID. Those days were too ample. You know, there was just too much stock in the system. Um, We're not quite there yet, which means we are going to probably be in a situation where the buffer is not strong enough to withstand supply shocks. And and as as I said, you know, weather, weather is the main supply shock. Demand, in my opinion, could start tailing off a little bit. We don't, you know, we've we've come out of that whole post-COVID pent-up demand. Demand from here on should probably be either back to historical averages or maybe even slightly lower. You know, the the aging um, population, the fact that we're, you know, after 500 basis points of interest rate hikes in the major economies, at some point consumers will probably see their disposable income fall and they will not be consuming foods to the extent that they were. So I think you might see some demand growth being curtailed a little bit. So, you know, if you put the two together and you see some supply response, weather permitting, and some shaving of the demand growth, be in a position where we start rebuilding um, the uh, stocks. And I think that'll allow prices to stabilise. But again, they're unlikely to stabilise at prices we saw back in 2016 or 17, only because your cost base has gone up so much. And I think for that for that cost base to come down, we would need to be in a more deflation environment. We, today, we're still looking at 5% inflation rates in the USA, 10% inflation in the UK. You know, these are not normal levels. So until we get to something which is akin to the 2 or 3%, which we saw back in the mid-2010s, I think you're not going to get, uh, you're not going to see those prices come off in a hurry Um but that goes to the point that is, you know, is inflation here to stay? And is this the norm? Or is what we had back in the 2000s, was that actually more of an exception than the rule? Yeah, which is a nice segue into this, you know, so I think you set we've set the sort of a global picture up very well. There's also regional variation. And I mean, let's take the UK, uh, you know, just uh, your, your base there. What's going on that means you do have sort of the US now at 5%, but the UK still at 10? You know, which regions are, are more impacted by this and probably less have less capability to get themselves out of it? Yeah, so if you look at UK, it's a net food importer. Um, the US, on the other hand, is a massive agricultural exporter. It's also a massive energy exporter. You could argue that this recent commodity rally of the last two years has benefited the USA more than it has the UK. The UK has problems of its own, and unfortunately, um, the whole Brexit, leaving the EU, which was their major trading partner, I think that didn't help. Bureaucracy, uh, border controls, also led it, led it to a layer of costs. But most importantly, and I believe this is something that's um, everyone's been suffering. Is again this the cost of labour? It's just very, very expensive to hire people on the farm or in the supermarkets or at the restaurants. You know, you you once you asked me earlier, did COVID lead to a structural change? I mentioned that it was there might have been a catalyst, but sometimes I wondered, did it was it more of a catalyst? Because this great resignation that we saw something has fundamentally changed the labor force and maybe we're coming we were getting here anyway because of the demography is aging there seems to be less migration going around the world you know the uk would attract hundreds of thousands of european um laborers they're not doing that anymore 
you know, a lot of country are turning more inwards. There's a lot of um, onshoring as opposed to offshoring. There's friendshoring. There's, there's there's a whole divergence of supply chains. Who are you going to who's going to be your supply partner? Now, what that does, it means that you're not necessarily partnering up with your low cost producers or low cost suppliers. You're just going for politics as opposed to economics. And when that happens, you don't get good deals. And that means prices stay elevated and costs stay um, elevated. So I think, unfortunately, the UK has had the brunt of that to a certain extent. Um, And, you know, maybe it should be a warning for other countries because this could easily happen elsewhere. But at some point, I suppose, if wages go up in tandem with the costs, you could start seeing um, the labour market stabilise. But it's difficult to see um, inflation come back down to the levels we saw, um, you know, in the previous decade. But what is interesting, though, and you were talking about the regions, is how low inflation is in Japan and China. For me, that's really unusual because traditionally, when you talk about emerging markets, we always have thought that those were the countries that had high inflation. And this time, it's not the case. It's the Western world that's suffering from high inflation. Is that not because China and Japan have steadily resisted raising interest rates? But if you raise interest rates, you only raise interest rates because you want to tackle inflation. I would argue that um, China, because of COVID, has suffered from low inflation because obviously it was just in lockdown forever and ever and ever. So that inflation pressure should actually start creeping in now. And I'm really surprised that it hasn't now because the Western world, two years ago, were in the same boat. They were just opening up and that unleashed a huge amount of inflation where there was just too much demand chasing insufficient supply. So I'm really surprised that China isn't seeing that kind of level of inflation today. Japan's a different case. Japan, it's a demography. It's, um, you know, despite so much monetary stimulus and quantitative easing, I'm always surprised how low their inflation is. And I do believe it's just the economies and on a low growth, steady as you go type um, situation. And maybe that's where Europe is going to end up, America not so. But no, I think China for me is a little bit of an enigma this time around. Yeah. So pulling it all together, you know, we're a year from now and we've got you back on. Where I know this is a tough one and excluding kind of extreme weather events, but kind of all things the same. Where do you think food, are we still going to have sticker shock going to buy the eggs at the supermarket or will things be on a path to normalisation? The broad answer would be we're going to be on a path to normalisation. But I think very, that will very much depend on where you are. So I think the UK may take a while before we get to that level. I think it's going to head in the right direction. So consumers in the supermarket may feel a little bit better off next year this time than they are today, but not entirely. Whereas maybe other countries, certainly um, the US, for example, I think they should be in a better position within six months, I would have expected. Um, so I think it does very much depend where you are. But I think a supply response, along with slowish demand, um, should allow us some sort of um, supply demand convergence, which allows for some more normalisation this time next year. Yeah. And then taking that sort of excluding weather events, but bringing that back in, what, you know, for your average layperson like myself, kind of what are the most impactful weather events and what should we be looking out for? You know, what are the two or three things that really make a difference? 
So when you look at the key producers around the world, we have um, hubs. We have hubs in Brazil. They're not just the world's largest soybean producer. They're one of the largest cotton producers. They're one of the, they are the largest coffee producer and they are the largest sugarcane producer. So that makes them incredibly important for so many supply um, products. So a weather event in this region and Argentina as well um, is is cannot be underestimated. So as I mentioned before, we're moving into an El Nino that can lead to heavy dra- heavy rains. Now that can be good for future crops, but it's terrible if the rains happen during harvest because it means that you can't harvest. It means that your crops are squashed or turned muddy or you struggle to harvest it. And, you know, for example, for coffee, if, if it rains too heavily during the coffee harvest, the cherries just fall off the trees and you can't reap those properly. So it's it's an unusual one. But I think traditionally, Brazil, it's the drought. When you have droughts, as you had in the last three years in a row because of La Nina, that's when you start seeing real, real yield issues. The other un- un- thing that we're noticing is Europe. So the big fertile lands in Germany, France, Poland, parts of Netherlands, and Spain, I'm sure you're seeing on the news that Spain's been receiving 40 degrees heat in the month of April. You know, this, these are really, really extreme conditions. It's not a coincidence that for the last three or four years in a row, it comes to around about May, June time. And then I'm hearing again, droughts here in Europe, droughts there in Europe. And I didn't used to hear that so often. So something's happening to the region. So does that mean that we cannot rely anymore on the EU for for a reliable supplier of grains and oil seeds um, or beet sugar, and do we therefore have to go to South South America, or worse still, do we have to rely on Russia because you know though they have Russia at the end of the day, like it or not, has sits on incredible fertile land, very underpopulated, vast vast quantities of land which are just waiting to be um, reaped and cropped, so. Um, those are the two things I've noticed for sure. Africa, still highly populated. There is there is potential land there, but um, very, very susceptible to weather variations. So it's a tricky one. I think climate change will make things more extreme. But as with all things in commodities, if the supply side becomes that much more uncertain, prices will do what they'll need to do for farmers to either investing technology to make, you know, weatherproof, you can't make weatherproof um, grains, but you can build certain traits or certain seeds which allow you to withstand um, extreme temperatures or floods. I think that's something that might have to happen. You might see more investment in genetically modified um, crops, but that that's that's probably something we might start seeing a trend of, but um Weather is unfortunately the one thing I could never ever forecast properly, and no one ever will be able to. No, 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 they can't even get it right on a daily basis where I'm based. But uh, that, that aside, I mean, it's also probably it's another it's another podcast, I guess, on how as you see labor costs increase, increased mechanization and 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 technology developments in harvesting and so forth, which is obviously going on as well. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion, slightly worrying, as all these seem to be ending up being about the velocity of, of weather events and the, the magnitude of those and how they are going to have an impact. And I'm, again, it's probably not for this podcast, but I'm quite interested in how, for the most part, populations have been generally quiescent in a period of 10%, 20% food inflation. And, and you know, whether that will continue if inflation doesn't come off, 
but yeah really thanks for your time Kona and I hope we can have you back on again in a year's time and see where we stand it's an absolute pleasure thank you so much for having me thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to find out more about HC Insider and HC Group a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.